We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with chess players, personalities, authors, and adult improvers about their lives, their careers, and about chess improvement. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to Perpetual Chess. Before we get into today's episode, just a very brief announcement to let you all know that Perpetual Chess now has an Instagram, excuse me, an Instagram page. Um, I am not super active on Instagram. I have a personal account that I hardly ever check. But now we will have an official Perpetual Chess account that will not be run by me. But the good news is it will share audio clips. So if you enjoy Instagram, um, I'll link to it. I believe it's going to be at Perpetual Chess. Um, Feel free to share the little clips. And I'll also be sharing some clips and someone will be helping me out with that, which is greatly appreciated. Um, So I'll be sharing that on Twitter as well and maybe the Facebook group. So those are our primary uh, social media reaches now. Um, I'll, of course, link to those in the show description, but just a heads up to keep an eye out for that. Um, With that out of the way, uh, let's get to introducing today's guest. So a lot of you have, over the years, requested that we interview a tournament director so that we could get sort of a behind-the-scenes look at how these tournaments get run, answer some commonly asked questions and stuff like that. And we are going to have a great one today, one that comes highly recommended by a friend and former guest of the show, Christopher Shabri, among other people. Um, I saw that Grandmaster Akshat Chandra, before he was a Grandmaster, wrote wrote a blog post uh, glowing about this guest. Uh, By day, he is an observatory scientist at the James Webb Space Telescope Telescope Science Institute, but he also is active running tournaments in the Maryland and Washington, D.C. area. He's the treasurer of the Maryland Chess Association. Uh, His tournaments are known to be very pleasant. We'll get into what's different about his tournaments in a minute. But first, let's bring him in. So, Michael Reagan, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Um, so I'm excited to talk with you about sort of behind the scenes um, tournament details, putting everything together, fair play, um, uh, amenities. Um, I even have a hygiene question for you. So we have a lot to talk about, but but okay. um, not not your hygiene. Don't worry. Okay, good. <laughs> or mine, or mine for that matter. Um, 
But I do. Um, first, I figured I, it would be useful to know because I know we have lots of listeners who uh, are interested in tournament directing. Some do tournament directing. I've done a bit of tournament directing, but not a ton. But what was your your entry into this world, Michael? There's sort of two phases back in the late 70s when I was in college. I directed four or five tournaments. Just I can't remember the motivation, but you know they were at hotels and everything. I just wanted to do a better job, and I thought I could do it. And that same motivation kicked in when my kids started playing chess when I started back in the, the early 2000s. And saw how Maryland Chess was running the Scholastic events and thought I could do a better job and then transitioned into running the Maryland Scholastic for a few years and then thought I could do a better job in the mm-hmm. Opens, which I thought were more challenging than the Scholastics and have evolved yeah. from there. And by all accounts, you are doing a good job. But but what was it that first struck you? What were the first uh, flashpoints for you in terms of uh, things that you felt people should be doing better? Starting on time, I'd say, is my my number one thing. It was frustrating to to show up and at some of those events, the early scholastic ones, to be wait an hour, an hour and a half before round one would start, and you, just because poor organization and. That's been always is like my number one thing. If the round starts at 11, then the clock should be ticking at 11 is my goal. And uh, that's my number one because you're wasting people's time. You're going to stay up later. You're just – nobody wants to be there. And, if, and there's a, a feedback that if you don't start on time, people don't show up on time. <laughs> right. And it's very frustrating to me. I've had – uh, my son and I playing in tournaments where he would be in a lower rated section and the pairings don't even go up, you know, until the scheduled start time of the round. And it was a seven o'clock game and he was youngish. So why, you know, we're starting at seven thirty. now, you know, that's, he's going to be even tireder as the game goes on. What, what is the point? <laughs> yeah. And I can go on and on about this, but, uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, well, why don't we start by asking what what your tips are? Because again, I I've run a few tournaments. I try to I try to run them on time, but occasionally I would be ten or fifteen minutes late. So what what do you do to to make sure that there's zero exceptions to the problem of people running in at the last minute trying to register or some sort of issue with Swiss Sys or whatever pairing program you're you're using? How do you make sure that there's no delays? Well, one is you you have to be willing to. Tell people who show up late that they're getting a buy in the first round because I've already done the pairings. And you annoy that person, but the majority of the people showed up on time, registered ahead of time, and and those are the ones you need to (laughs) focus on. You can't let the exception affect the whole crowd. And that that willingness, wanting to get the last at-the-door entry in uh, is what Marilyn Chess used to do, too, that led to so many problems and it you know creates a bad reputation if you know you if people know you don't start on time and so uh and i it's frustrating to me you know when someone shows up five minutes before the round saying can i can i register i have to just say no you know you can get a buy in round one and i'll put you in in round two and the vast majority of them accept that 
and then they evolve to showing up on time. Yeah. Yeah, you're 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 training them properly. And what is right. what is your cutoff for for what time they have to get there before the first round? Um, officially, it's an hour, but I will go. Uh, I actually do the pairings at about thirty minutes till, and I we use uh, texting to send them out. And if I've made a mistake, if I've missed someone's registration or something, I will repair. But if it's their mistake, then I won't do the re- – I won't. Okay. And just to share a few more of things that, that Michael tries to do in his tournaments, I'm reading uh, bullet points from your upcoming tournament, which are the top two sections are FIDE rated. The top five boards are on DGT. Um, board sets and clocks are provided for virtually all sections, and they are often wood sets and boards, not plastic or vinyl. All clocks are DGT and properly set, so no confusion about whether the clock is right. 30-second increments. Um, Christopher Chabri mentioned he's a particular fan of that. Uh, he's developed an aversion, he said, because of this, to playing non-increment events. Uh, rounds start on time. They actually do. Verified. Tentative pairings appear online, and you get text tentatively at least 45 minutes before the round, so you can do some prep. So lots of uh, great things that um, I think... Uh, should be emulated, although um, I'm not sure. Like, there may be some people who who feel like they're just trying to start out and that they, they can't emulate them. So, which of these do you think are the most important um, to provide as a baseline, Michael? Um, I think planning to start on time, and there's a difference in scale, you know, between a, a 30 player tournament, a 300 player tournament, where processes people use in the smaller events break down when you get to a big event and that's where a lot of people run into problems that's i when i i mean i've had a couple of tournaments blow up scholastic ones where there were just too many people and we and it's one of the reasons why we i developed the the texting problem you know method I'll, code yeah. <laughs> came up with because you know if you got a 30 player event and you print out the pairings and you put them up and people walk up, look up the pairings and go to their board. But uh, when you've got 500, which we had in Maryland at a time, just even letting people know that the pairings is up is challenging. And then you have this mass, a number of people all going up to find the pairings and trying to find their boards, you know, and it was taking us 45 minutes from when we paired to when we could actually start the next round, 30 to 45 and you're just it was a very frustrating process and uh by being able to directly send each person you know go to board 45 you're playing white you know it's much more efficient in crowd management it's not as critical in an open event but it still helps Mm -hmm. by people getting the event they don't have to stop at the pairing sheet they come from wherever they are getting the text they go straight to the board and how do you streamline the texting itself? Even the logistics of texting a uh, hundred fifty or three hundred different people seems like a challenge to me. Oh well, I have a program that I wrote that basically reads the Swiss Sys files, creates the message, and sends it out. Wow, that's pretty cool. And it does ten texts a second, so you just hit a button, and within ten seconds or so, everybody's got their text, text and and or email of what. Uh, who, where to go and who they're playing. And that evolved from the scholastic, from that problem I was talking about of, 
trying to get the info to the people was so hard. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I might as well use it in the open events. I didn't. It's not critical for getting the round to start, but it does, again, just make it much less hectic of no scramble to people standing in front of the pairing sheet writing down their opponent's name and no one can see <laughs> onto their score sheet and no one behind them can even figure out who they're playing and it just adds time and hassle. Yeah, certainly it's uh, I'm sure it's appreciated by the players if they're staying in the hotel they can they can stay where they are. Um, and at least for your next tournament, I saw the hotel rates are pretty reasonable, 89 a night. Is that something that you, you try to arrange as well? Um, well, it's a goal. It helps hotels in the winter really appreciate us. Um, <laughs> it's not, you know, a prime time. Uh, but in, if you're on the weekend, hotels in general have empty rooms it's when you move into the longer events and you take up a weekday that you have a problem because you're competing with the business customers and generally i've actually i mean most of the tournaments that i did run when i was doing tournament directing were smaller scale scholastic events um back when i lived in pittsburgh so i didn't i didn't ever reach a scale where i needed a hotel um are you when you rent space for a hotel, how much of it is uh, paying for conference rooms as opposed to them relying on the income they're going to generate from the people staying at the hotel? It's a, it's a mix. If you can guarantee enough rooms and that is the unknown, what that number is, uh, you would, you can get the meeting rooms for free. I've had that a couple of times (laughs) And, and if they're slow enough and they really want your business, no matter what, if you guarantee some amount of rooms, you're going to be paying less for the meeting rooms than if you just come in there and want to have a room for a day for their meeting rooms. So getting enough people in to stay at the hotel is the critical part of making it cost-effective. And that's where the sort of medium-sized tournaments really struggle because they can't fit. You know, They're too big to fit in a Elks Lodge-type room. They need a bigger space, but if everybody's commuting and you know just driving from home, drive and sleep in their own beds, they're not going to sell many hotel nights, and so you're still going to be paying, you know, list price for the meeting rooms. So that 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 fifty to a hundred range is a real challenge for tournaments. While something like the World Open. Uh, he's got like a thousand people, almost all of them staying. And for four or five nights, uh, I'm pretty sure the hotel rooms are free and he's actually making money off commissions on the sleeping rooms. Oh, the, so, com- the conference rooms are free, right? Yeah. Yeah. That many room nights, you're going to get the conference rooms for free. The The playing rooms. That's interesting. And when you started out and you you looked to dive into this world, um, what like what surprised you? What were the what 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 did you what was were there any unexpected difficulties in running your first handful of tournaments? Um, not I I would say dealing with hotels is a the biggest challenge. The hotel salespeople, uh, because we're small events, we're getting the new sales always. It's right. always the new people. And uh, it should be, you know, if those rooms, let's say the meeting rooms are going to be empty 
because it's a weekend and the sleeping rooms are going to be empty because it's a weekend. It should be that they should be really looking for your business. That anything is better than nothing. But some, you know, the variance in price, it's a very inefficient market. You can go out with the same request for proposals to five hotels, basically at the same uh, quality level and, and get numbers by a factor of 10 different on what wow. they'll charge you. <laughs> and I just, like, because they look at what's the best possible for them. The best possible is a wedding reception. <laughs> right. And so if they can get a wedding reception and sell 10,000 of food and beverage, they're very happy with that. Uh, weddings don't in general sell as many sleeping rooms, but they still, they don't care if they can get that much food and beverage. So some of our hotels, uh, well, like one of our main ones, we never have the main ballroom. We're always in a series of medium to smaller size rooms that we spread out in. And, and the fact that we will use that on a weekend and it's not competing uh, for weddings or proms or bar mitzvahs, which are all things that people bring in a lot of money, not as much food and beverage at a prom, but the others, <laughs> um, uh, is a good relationship for them because those rooms sit empty on the weekends. Yeah. So finding finding the right hotels is critical, and, and so you just have to. Yeah. Well, a lot of the stuff you describe is strikes me as fairly seasonal as well. Like your upcoming Baltimore Open is February seventh to ninth. I mean, definitely right. definitely no proms. Um, right. Probably not a ton of weddings either. So, um, does that help with uh with the deals you're able to make? Yeah. We always do better, and that's why we kind of bias towards the winter. But the Maryland Open, we're in mid-April. We're usually in early May. So our, our room nights are usually more expensive, and we got bumped by a couple of weeks just because of from our normal this year competing for space. That springtime in the D.C. area is big, you know, both because of weddings and proms and just more tourists and that can be challenging, but even when you get back into August, August is a slow month at hotels too, but July isn't. So, and it all depends on your local market. But in most places, except say Florida, the winter time is going to be a slower time of sense. year. And it, and is your goal with these tournaments? Are you trying to make money, or are you just trying to to break even? What's what's your general goal for these? Um, we're trying to make. A small amount of profit. That's how profit's the wrong word for a nonprofit. Um, <laughs> positive cash flow. Right. Um, that's how we've been able to buy the material, you know, the board sets and clocks. But most of that goes into both scholastic stipends. We give free entries to players who win some of our scholastic tournaments into our open events. And then the Washington International, which is a net negative tournament for us but kind of our main thing we subsidize significantly to get a nine round norm event and being able to give some conditions to foreign gms and ims well yeah i mean it's quite commendable that you do that i mean it's you know at the at the non-elite level support for titled players and people seeking titles can be can be hard to come by yeah it's hard you know because it's easy in Europe to get non-home uh, federation players, but it's challenging 
in a large country. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like us. So Canada Canadians are our friends. And Mexico, those are two big components we get. But we get a lot of people coming. Since it's in the summer, we get people from Europe coming over and playing too. And what uh, what governs your decisions like uh, having 30-second increments in your tournaments and, and stuff like that? I mean, there's beyond just the timing of the, the making sure things start on time. There are other things that differentiate your, your tournaments such as that. Well, I like it. I mean, as a tournament director, there's two hats to wear. As an organizer, increment's kind of scary because you never know how long the round is going to last. Right. Um, and, you know, and we do get a 120-move game every so often, which pushes up to the start time in the next round. But as a director, you like it because you have to have a valid score sheet at all times so that if there's any question, I don't come up to the board with missing moves. So... Uh, I don't have to sit there if someone wants to claim repetition where I'm supposed to sit and watch, you know, and try to figure out in my head if they're actually repeating positions. I've got it's still a standard rules. There's no official time pressure. Nothing changes in the rules. And you don't have, you know, the clock smashing, knocking over pieces <laughs> right. stuff that that you get in delay or where people are just going as fast as they can. And so it's, I always, when the people are playing on the increment, it's still quite stressful for them. Making a move every 30 seconds is hard, but it, it kind of, it's like slow motion time pressure because they have the adrenaline pumping, but they don't have to be slamming pieces all the time. Yeah. And so it just, it just leads to quality. It lets people, by having a, a second time control where you add some time in, and with 30-second increment, you can win some hard end games that there's no way you would ever be able to figure out anything over the board with five-second delay. You know, rook versus knight versus rook, you know, knight, knight and rook against rook, those kinds of things. If you remember what the basic process is, either to attack or defend, I've seen people uh, finally win. I've seen people, you know, get into the 40s on that and then break down on defending and miss it at the end but the game would have been over out of due to time pressure if they've been playing on delay um so did you did you come to these time controls through trial and error did you did you used to do um uh delay or have you all done increment from the beginning no we were delay so i started doing the open events in 2008 or so and we were delay for a while for three or four years so i'd have to go back and look but it just seemed so logical to me and having been a person who appreciates having time to think mm -hmm. um and i thought it would make sense and in general people like it I, you know there are people who who don't like it some not you know, it takes a while to adjust that you can't allocate your time just by looking at the time on the clock and saying I have 15 more moves and there's only five minutes on my clock. You know, people get confused when they're trying to, to do the simple math and realize that you always got the extra 30 seconds. And yeah. So it, it does take people a tournament. The first time it's sometimes awkward, but I would say 90% of people prefer the increment 
Yeah, and it looks like generally I'm looking at the Baltimore Open. The the pair the time control is f- after the first round. It's 40 moves in 90 minutes and sudden death 30, including yeah. uh, 30 second increment. Is that your standard? Yeah. So so how long? I mean, obviously I could figure this out, but that means you're you're accounting for about a five hour game. Is that the rounds are seven hours apart? Five hours would be a 60 move game, I believe. Okay. Um. So, so maybe maybe on you know on median or maybe even median's probably below that, but yeah, but it's the, not the interesting thing is no matter what, uh, the first time getting to forty moves, seventy five percent of the games will be over before you hit forty, mm-hmm. even more than that. It's if you look at the time control, what happens when everybody's forced to be at forty moves? It's like probably in the eighty to ninety percent of the games are over. Okay. But the, that tail, you know, it'll be five, I'd say 5.15 to 5.30 is the normal last game finishing. And we, I am switching starting in April to six and a half hours between rounds instead of seven, just because I've always been worried about the tail long running game. And we'll just, a six and a half hour game is not going to happen <laughs> so yeah. putting it six and a half even a, someone with a six hour game would still have a half hour to recover and most of the other people won't have to wait around as long yeah that makes sense although speaking of the waiting around i mean i've you know i've interviewed a lot of top chess players and um you know i'm friends with greg shahadi so he's i've he's been on the show a bunch of times and he, i don't know if you're familiar with his uh his views about uh weekend tournaments but he's he's always kind of outspoken about uh, longer games. And recently when I interviewed him, he was just saying that there needs to be some sort of uh, accommodation for people to be able to eat meals uh, comfortably and maybe even exercise while they're at a tournament. Um, how do you balance views like that with with the need for people to want to play their best and take their time when they play? Yeah, I mean, yes, I have read his stuff, which is some of the reason why I was leaving that, you know, that that philosophy, which to me is you'd want two to three hours between your games, yeah, to admit, you know, to be able to recover and and do something. Um, you've got this, you know, as with everything, there's a pushback, and it usually relates to you know parents who aren't the actual people playing, mm-hmm. and kids who don't need the recovery as much, uh, you know, who don't want to be sitting around waiting, yeah. You know, the people with the hotel rooms who are staying at the hotel, it's you know, it's a it's a very good experience to have the two to three hours to spare. You go back to your room, you relax. But people who are sitting in the Skittles room and don't really uh, have anything to do, right? <laughs> the extra time is not as good for them. So, and that's uh, comments like Greg's or why, like at the Washington International where it's nine rounds. The second time control is 20 minutes instead of 30 minutes as a compromise. You're going to play nine games uh, over five days. You need to be able to get to bed earlier and have more gap, you know, more, you don't need as much time playing. You know, I'm not a fan of going to a full 90 plus 30, which or as fast as that, which I think Rick would prefer. Um, Just because I, I like there to be time that you're not playing on increment. After you've used up your primary forever, you can at 40 moves you can go to the bathroom or something, yeah, and recover and come up with a plan for your end game. Yeah, but uh, 
but you know, I also don't believe in, uh, you know, adding an hour after move 40 would really add, you know, can lead to really long games and, and draining people out and doing that over five days. Day five's hard enough as it is. Yeah. You need some less time on the sitting down playing. Yeah, I, that makes sense. I mean, what you mentioned about parents complaining is a really good point that that I hadn't really thought of. I mean, of course, like, you know, even though you're you're accounting for hotels and allowing people to travel to your tournaments, I mean, a lot of your clientele is going to be regional. Um, and of course, chess being so popular at the scholastic level, it's going to be a lot of kids. So so how do you balance more generally sort of the, the competing desires of scholastic players as compared to um, uh, adult players? Well, one of the You'll see in our one of the things I do differently in our tournaments, the bottom two sections, which for the Baltimore Open, the under 1250 and the under 1000, they're playing game 90, first two rounds. And so uh, they're playing a lot faster. And they have their last game on Saturday, starts at three and actually finishes before even the evening game starts for the top sections, because it'll finish before right at six when the other people are starting. Uh, it's a compromise, you know, it's longer than your standard scholastic game 30, maybe game 60 game, but not as long as a full higher rated players because they aren't using the time. It's, but 90 is a lot for a lot of them anyway. And by pushing that in, they, you cut down on their waiting time and you don't have as many kids running around in the evenings. And a lot of times it's not even the kids themselves, but it's the siblings of the kids. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> the younger siblings who are uh, stuck at a hotel for all day by being let the, letting them get home earlier. Yeah, do you think general. you could make it even like if you were to push it to to sixty minutes with increment? Would you would you get a lot of complaints? Do you think? Well, the bottom two sections are not increment even. They're, oh, okay, just they're delay five. So uh, that also lets me have the rounds more predictable so mm. I can squeeze a little tighter in there. Yeah. Um, and I have, they have, let's see, at the Chesapeake Open, we, which is a normally a, a four or three-day tournament, the top bottom sections had a two-day where they just played Sunday and Monday, and they had the first four rounds for game 25, and still probably half of the players in each of those sections played that two-day schedule to play really fast for yeah. four rounds. You know, I'm uncomfortable, but that's what they... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, the parents... I mean, <laughs> it's a lot they, for the parents, you know? Right. So, I mean, you would know as a as a parent. So, does your, does your, is your son uh, out of the house or still home? Does he still play chess? He's not playing. He's in college right now. Okay. My daughter played too, so it, it was it was fun. Well, it's great that you're still supporting chess, even with your your kids no longer um, actively involved at the moment. Yeah, it's no longer about them. It's just trying to do different things. I'm always. That's great. Um, So, Michael, we have a question from a supporter of the podcast. But first, we're going to just take a break for one minute. Well, if you're a regular Perpetual Chess listener, you have probably heard that 100 Endgames You Must Know is a great book for basic endgame learning and review. 
What you may not have heard is that renowned YouTube presenter I am John Bartholomew has just released a 19-hour video course with Chessable explaining 100 Endgames You Must Know. For a limited time, it's on sale, and it will even feature a bonus video of Magnus Carlsen trying out some of the exercises. This is a great value for the quality of instruction you're receiving, so go to chessable.com and grab it while it's on sale. Back to the show. Okay, so we have a question from Brian Castro of Better Chess Training. Uh, Brian is a supporter of the podcast and mentions that he is just getting into running tournaments. So here is uh, Brian's question. He says, I'm a new club TD and we have a situation at our small club where there's a divide between several stronger players and many less experienced players. We're not at the point in numbers where we can run two sections. What advice do you have for a tournament format and perhaps prizes to try to please everyone? I know you can't please everyone, but I want to try in this case. Um, well, under prizes are the, the default way under some rating value. And if the, the strong players really want to play more strong players and not want to waste quote around say against someone 400 points below them you could use accelerated pairings in the first two rounds which will play the top half against the top half and prevent the big rating mismatches and they'll get more quality games that way um under sections are tricky because at some level you have to have more prizes because now you've got two people, two sections to deal with. But in general, they always lead to more people playing is the thing to remember, that more people would rather be in an under-1800 section than and have a chance to get first there than win an under-1800 prize in an open event. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's tough to say without knowing the exact particulars of uh the situation where Brian right. where Brian is like I mean of course quads are a possibility but I'm sure Brian has thought of that and yeah. has has his reasons for for do, using a different format. Um but yeah, accelerated pairings, I mean do you, would they work even if you just have say, you know, 14 people total or something? Is that is that too small a field to use them? So the normal method, you know, is to prevent the perfect scores when you have a big right. group of people. Is if there are if there's a large rating range, and then in that the top half is significantly rated higher than the bottom half, then they would work. It's because the question is: Is the second quartile going to beat the third quartile? So the top half losers are they going to be able to beat the bottom half winners? And We've used it in some of our scholastic events just to, when we have in our top section a big rating range just to get more competitive games mm-hmm. for those for those top players. Okay. And you prevent the mismatches. So sounds like that might be worth trying. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Um, another topic, of course, I can't have a tournament director on these days, Michael, unfortunately, <laughs> without discussing the issue of uh, fair play. Okay. So... Um, what sort of precautions do you take? Um, how, how, how often do you get complaints? I'm just curious, like how much of your tournament director bandwidth goes to this issue? I've been, uh, okay. I can first, I talk about what do I do about it? So, you know, we have a, a rule, kind of standard fide rules, no, no clock, no phones in your possession. 
and U.S. chess, you can have it, but you can't leave the room with it. I've got a, a wand mag, uh, metal detector that I will randomly hit people when they walk out of the room. Just uh, let them know that I'm checking. I've got Wi-Fi cameras that I set up, especially for the Washington International, that record uh, everybody's on view all the time. And I can go back to it if I need to, which so far I haven't been haven't had to. Um, I think uh, I'm trying to remember. I haven't had any. I really would like to punish someone, <laughs> but I haven't caught anybody and am frustrated with the stories that I have of people coming to me saying so-and-so was found with a phone in the bathroom at the last tournament, and so I don't want to play him. And as an organizer and a director, I can't do anything. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that player, if they don't – if they are not suspended from U.S. chess, I have to let them play. And, and that's a very frustrating thing for me. You know, I can watch them like a hawk, which I have done. But it, uh, when the player says, I don't want to play him, I actually one time did repair to avoid that situation. It's very frustrating to me of directors who don't follow through and with the, you know, prosecution through an ethics complaint because it that to me is you know if all you do is lose one game for cheating the risk reward ratio is in your favor yeah (laughs) and it needs to be strong consequences because we're never going to catch everybody so we need to really punish hard and some tds do not want to deal with the hassle and i'm willing to (laughs) That's good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's such a tricky issue. And obviously it's, I mean, we have baseball teams cheating, <laughs> like, uh, you know, everyone cheats at everything, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, and it seems like an existential threat to the, the chess world. So it's, um, it's, yeah, it's, um, I think, uh, bright lines would be helpful and, you know, firm rules. Um, but it's easier said than done. If someone's going to try to hide a phone in the bathroom, that's, uh, that's tough to combat. Yeah, but you know, my I have my desk, my TD desk in the middle of the playing area. I'm not in the back room during the tournament and I'm watching subliminally or actively. You know, if somebody's getting up a lot that if you're going to use the phone, if you're going to you're going to use it more than once, you know, you're going to somehow you need a way to look at it. And so that requires anonymity it requires the ability to get up every couple of moves and go someplace and by keeping an eye on the the playing area you would see those patterns and i have i have wanted people who i've seen going out you know at above average number of times that's good. Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate. I'm sure some people feel like it's an invasion of privacy, but but you can't have it both ways. If you want fair games, you know, you you have to be be willing to to accept some inconvenience. Yeah, I'm I'm uncomfortable. Just like I'm not accusing you of cheating. I'm just right. <laughs> I don't have any evidence here, but uh, you know, I, and I'm frustrated that just as an aside, that, that players can't have uh, you know a tournament of their lifetime without it being thought that they cheated. And, you know, people used to play 
statistically impossibly well for five games 20 years ago and no one thought they were cheating and now it's just assumed well they can't have possibly played that well they must have cheated and that's the only evidence some people think they need to uh, you know accuse someone of cheating it's just they played really well and you really need (laughs) to find the method you can't just play too well yeah yeah it is unfortunate that yeah yeah and the engines are are only getting better unfortunately (laughs) and (laughs) you know the the computers are only getting smaller so exactly uh, so you can do more yeah and more in less and less processing time yeah um so one more on running tournaments michael um uh, supporter of the podcast rob Steele. i i asked greg shahadi a similar question just because it came up last time he was on the show but he's um he's had some issues with uh with as i mentioned the hygiene of other players so rob mentioned he says i feel like local chess authorities could at least add in their handbooks a directive that people should exercise a minimum of courtesy when they're suffering from an illness germs can be spread very easily either airborne sneezing coughing or by touch handshakes or via the pieces some germs can survive for 72 hours and it only takes a small bottle of sanitizer or disposable tissue to minimize the risk of transfer i understand that this can't be made into an enforceable rule and that games cannot be forfeited but the least should, that should happen is that clubs and authorities should make the environment a safer and cleaner place. Um, so I guess that's not really a question, but I mean, Rob, I think um, if, if memory serves, he's um, uh, hyper um, sensitive to germs and can get sick easily. Is, do, you, do you see any recourse for situations like this? I know that, well, I have a couple, you know, one, under standard U.S. chess rules, I need a you know someone to complain. Mm-hmm. Now I I push that and will at times intervene even when no one has complained. And I feel like I'm more sensitive than the average player when I hear someone coughing all the time or sniffling, and wish someone co- would complain so that I could, <laughs> right. could intervene. Um, I have. I don't know that I've actually told someone, you know, could you do something about it? It's really tricky because U.S. chess has all these rules that are basically set up that the players have the right to play. And so it's hard for me to say you don't, you know, you're too sick to play, which I have felt I should have said at times. Um, I can separate people out. I can put them in a different room, but then their opponent's still going to be, their opponent has to be there. (laughs) Um, And I've, there's people I have done who've been loud uncontrollably and I've had them in separate rooms, but yeah. But you can't just, if someone shows up at the board, you can't, (laughs) can't, can't send them away. Right. Whether they're coughing or not. Yeah. Now, you know, there is a, a rule that you can't distract or annoy your opponent. And that's a case where if someone was actually, you know, coughing all the time and the opponent came to me, you know, we could, I could come up with something that if it was enough of an annoyance, we would figure out something to do, whether that's moving into a different room or something. But again, Unlike with the FIDE rules, under U.S. chess rules, you know, we're real 
pushing that you can't intervene without a claim. And but I can do a lot more when people complain. Okay. Well, sorry, Rob, if that's not the the best answer, but uh, but yeah, it's, it's as as Rob, Rob knows, it's a it's a constrained environment in terms of what what people can do. It's just, I'm sure it's frustrating for him. Um, so Michael, before before we let you go, thanks. This has been really really helpful. I think. I mean, it's been a lot of we we talked to so many chess players of of all levels and uh, backgrounds, but we very rarely get the the tournament director's perspective. But I did want to hear just a little bit about your own playing. I did. I think I found on your USCF account you you have played. You are a tournament player as well. What um are do you have? It looks like you haven't played in a while. Has has directing replaced your urge to play for the time being? It's replaced my time. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> um, I enjoyed playing. I the last I've been playing with going with the kids to tournaments and playing. And if they're not playing, just for me, I don't have a lot of interest in just going when playing by myself when everybody else is at home. Yeah, it's more fun. You know, even in in high school, I had the best time playing on a high school team. You know, where other people are rooting for you. You come back and everybody's happy when you win <laughs> versus, you know, playing individually. You know, I do want to play more, but I just don't have the time. And like every uh, weekends and stuff that I could do it, I've got so many chess tournaments I'm organizing that I don't. Yeah. And you mentioned your son is now in college. Is your daughter still at home or is she in college? No, she's, she's in college also. Yeah. Okay. So in theory, you probably have a little bit more time, but but, yes. I, but at least that's what I hear. My kids are far from college, but but uh, but yeah, that's when I tell myself I might get back into playing is once once they're or again if similarly if my son takes an, or my daughter take an interest in chess, um, that would enable me to play. But otherwise, it's it's tough. Yeah, I mean, I didn't play for thirty years and came back when they were interested, and we played and started playing for five or six years there, which was fun. And I was better. My rating is higher than it was when I was in my 20s, so I'm happy with that. That's good. Yeah, you're rated about 1,800. Is that right? 17-something. Okay. Um, Cool. Well, before we – last thing, Michael, before we let you go. So if you were to try – I mean, we've kind of hit upon it already, but if you were to try to sort of bullet point things that you think can be done better for tournaments, um, what would they be? Um, well, plan on starting on time. You know, I think if you provide even plastic boards and pieces, it helps the organization so much because the round, even if the players bring clocks, uh, you can get things started quicker. That's another advantage of having that equipment there. People can just show up and go and you don't have to dump out the pieces and roll out the board. So, and, and that, while it's a cost, if you buy in bulk, you can do four to five dollars for uh, pieces and board, and that's yeah. And it's like a one-time cost for the most. And it's part. a one-time cost, right? And yeah. it's and you get uh, in general appreciation from the players for doing that. It just it makes their life easier. But even as an organizer, it helps you start on time. Yeah, uh, and again. Starting on time causes the players to show up on time. So it's a feedback that uh, I think everyone should try to do as much as possible. 
And then uh, we should mention in your tournaments, uh, you, you're going the extra mile and providing breakfast on the last day. Um, that, that's certainly a nice touch. I saw yeah, a picture. I think it was on Twitter. The food looked pretty good. Yeah, well, that's, again, hotels like, you know, you can pay more for the meeting rooms or I can pay less for the meeting rooms and put some money of the money into food and beverage. It's part of the package I negotiate with the hotel. Mm-hmm. So, and therefore the players get something out of it rather than me That's just a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And they definitely notice and, and appreciate it. Um, one, one last question that occurs to me. I mean, you mentioned that generally you're trying to at least break even and maybe make a little bit of money for the association. Um, does the fact that, that you personally aren't so driven by the profit motive, does that does that make your your quote unquote business model less sort of replicable for anyone who's listening? I mean, it seems like a lot to ask for people to donate as much time as as it sounds like you do. Um, I don't, I don't think so. But given that most tournament directors lose tournaments lose money anyway, <laughs> it's a, a study I think U.S. Chess did. Even, you know, the ones that make solid profits are the very large ones because again like i said there's this overhead cost that the small small to medium tournaments suffer from um i do we do return a higher percentage than some of the bigger tournaments and i think players appreciate that but um if you're only returning you know 40 percent of the entry fees if that's the problem, even if all that money's going into overhead, that's uh, uh, players kind of feel that. Yeah, I don't know. I, I wish prize money wasn't as big of a issue, right? <laughs> but it's the environment we live in, and the expectation. You know, but if people would come, and as many people would come, paying forty dollars with no prizes. But you just won't get as many people. It's just a yeah fact. Ha- yeah, have you tried it? Or I have not tried it. <laughs> That's uh. But yeah, but, I mean, certainly at the club level, you you see like uh you know local clubs will have tournaments that where the money is not doesn't really go towards prizes. They just try to keep the entry fee down, right? And they do tend to be pretty small tournaments, right? And it's because there's a feedback too that people like going to a big event just because they see a lot of people playing chess kind of giving you this positive feedback that's why nationals scholastics are so encouraging the kids wow this room's full of yeah a thousand kids playing chess so wow i am part of you know versus 10 people in a room they can still be playing just as good at chess as if there's a thousand people but there's a feeling of that group and I think that's some of the positive feedback again that the bigger events get. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Oh, and I did. Th- I'm sorry, Michael. I did think of one more question that I meant to ask you. I saw that that with your prizes, you generally there's two schools of thought. Some tournament directors just pay first place, second place, third place. But you're you're often doing uh, based on the score that people play a set a fixed prize amount. Right. Um, so how did you what how did you come to the decision to take that approach? Well, I read about it. It actually was in the fourth edition of the rule book, and some people on the U.S. Chess forums mentioned it, and it intrigued me. And I did some modeling of, excuse me, of 
how it would work. And the nice thing about it is it lets the players always, you know, how much they get depends only on them. If they win four out of five, they know what they're going to get, not how many people tie with them. So from a player perspective, that's good. And from an organizer perspective, uh, the average amount of money I pay out is proportional to the number of players in the section, always. If you double the number of players, you're, you will on average double the amount of money you pay out. So the prize fund naturally scales with the number of players. So that's both good for the players and the organizer. Yeah, that makes sense. The disadvantage is I don't know in any given tournament what I'm going to pay out. Right. <laughs> Sometimes perfect scores, which are rare, need to represent their rareness. They need to have a high amount of payout. But if everybody and all this, you know, if a large number of the sections get perfect scores, then we actually can lose monies and have lost money on some tournaments. But it's on average, it's a it's a pretty fair payout. And again, that like with increment. The majority of the people seem to enjoy it, but some people tell me they don't like it. I think they just don't understand it. Mostly in the open section, which is hard to you – know, actually, last tournament I didn't use score-based for the open section. It's hard because you can get a GM come in who's 300 points above everybody else, and them getting a perfect score is relatively easy and hard for those other people to get – good scores right so it works it works well in under sections not as well in the in the open hmm. but it's overall i it's yeah, i mean it's advantages as soon as you finish i can write a check i don't have long lines of yeah all waiting for the very last game and then i have to write a million checks so people finishing early get to go home early they they like that yeah Okay. All right. Well, Michael, I I just want to thank you for your service to chess. I mean, it's, it sounds Thanks. like sounds like quite the labor of love, and I know that that uh, players who come across your tournament really really appreciate it. And you know, I'm I'm in New Jersey, so I'm not too far away. So if I if I ever get back into it, I'm definitely gonna gonna make an effort to um to make my way down to your area. Okay. Great. So, thanks. yeah, thanks so much for taking the time. And, uh, you know, players in the Eastern Seaboard listening, uh, you can check out the Baltimore Open coming up and um, support the Washington International. Um, anything else uh, for people you would recommend for people to do who would like to take some sort of action, Michael? No, that would be great. Show up. Okay. Try it, try it out. Excellent. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Um, and ha have a good day, Michael. All right. Thanks. Thanks, as always, to my producer, Matthew Passy, for making Perpetual Chess happen. I also want to thank all you guys and girls who helped me grow Perpetual Chess. That includes everyone who tells a friend about the show, everyone who writes a positive review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, whatever other podcast platform you may be on. All of it is appreciated and all of it keeps me going. But of course, most of all, I want to thank the people who provide financial support to the show. I would like to give extra special thanks to the following people and entities. They are Chessable Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Apprentice Twitch Channel, Andrew Bach, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porto, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, Dan O'Hanlon, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Greg Natel, Greg Shahadi, Guven Manet, Jens Green, John Jernigan, John Cromarty, John McCarthy, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, 
Lone Pine Chess, Lorraine Dore, Lucio Casada Silva, the law offices of Stuart Katz, Michael Kahn, FM Michael Oplin, Mike Zelazny, Moonmaster 9000, Peter Sodi, Reuven Fisher, Seattle Chess Club, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryant of Strong Chess, and Todd Kennedy. And I would also like to thank the following people and entities. They are Aaron Waffler, Ace Fayega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, FM Andre Terakov, Andrew Perry, Better Chess Training, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Chad Hilton, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Day's Chess Academy, Courtney Fry, Daniel Gell, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Lucas of U.S. Chess Federation, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Cramley, CEO of Chessable.com, Dalen Shelton, Dwayne Edmonds, Ethan Smith, I am elect Donnie Ariel, the Fox Valley Chess Club of Aurora, Illinois, Dr. Frank Tortoris, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Hans Schutt, Harish Srinivasan, James Aspinwall, James Benastia, James Moore, Jason Anfang, Jason Woolham, J. Deep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Jerry Wells, J.J. Stranod, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jordan Goodwin, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, GM Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katerina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovutsky, Krishna Kapala Krishnan, Larry Ryforth, Laura Belyovsky, Martin Knudsen, Matthew Passi, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Miguel Araspidi, Mike Clem, Mr. Mike Shahadi, Nate Salon, Neil Bruce, Olaf Mueller Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passi Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Swaining, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Roy Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Say Chess YouTube channel, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwalder, WGM, Tatia Vabrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Komonich, Tony Rotella, Tyrin Price, Victor Vrinkuls, Wayne Beam, William Brock, William Juniper, William Peterson, FM Zhao Chang of Chess1000.com, Zhivko Stoyanov, and that is everyone. Thanks, everyone. Catch you guys next week. Podcast Network.